Welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the Neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, listen local, think global. This is season four of Watershed Riders, and I am your host, Tannis MacDonald. I'm a professor and a poet, a researcher and a reviewer, a writer of creative nonfiction, and I'm a bit of a literary troublemaker. I'm also a prairie person living in KW, and I am a big, big reader. I love talking about books, and I love to talk to writers, especially those who live and work in the surrounding area. Local looms large on Watershed Writers. I'm very happy to welcome our guest for this episode, the fiction writer Anuja Varghese. Her debut short story collection, Chrysalis, explores South Asian diasporic experience through a feminist and speculative lens, and is published by House of Anansi Press. And just days before I interviewed Anuja, an interview that had been scheduled for weeks in advance, the news came through that Chrysalis had been awarded the Governor General's Award for Fiction. It is safe to say that I jumped around my office in glee on hearing this news. So more about Anuja. She is a Pushcart Prize-nominated writer whose work appears in Hobart, the Malahat Review, the Fiddlehead, Plenitude Magazine, Southern Humanities Review, So to Speak Journal, Flock Literary Journal, and the delightfully named Corvid Queen, a journal of feminist fairy tales. Her work has been recognized in the PRISM International Short Fiction Contest and the Alice Munro Festival Short Story Competition. Anuja writes literary fiction, speculative fiction, and erotica and romance, and combinations of all three. But always, she writes fiction in which women of color get the leading roles. In 2022, Anuja had work published in When Other People Saw Us, They Saw the Dead, an anthology of BIPOC gothic horror from Haunt Press, and also in Queer Little Nightmares, an anthology of queer monster stories from Arsenal Pulp Press. Anuja is also a professional grant writer, book reviewer, and editor. And in 2021, she took on the role of fiction editor for the Ex-Puritan magazine. She holds a degree in English literature from McGill University, and she is currently writing an adult fantasy novel that takes place in medieval India. She'll tell us more about that as we talk. Welcome, Anuja Varghese, to Watershed Writers. Hi, Tannis. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And the timing is propitious. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so only a handful of days ago, you were told that you have won the Governor General's Literary Award for 2023 for your book, Chrysalis. What kind of a week has it been for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a wild, 
thing to happen, right? I don't think anybody ever uh, expects something like this, especially with a first book and a collection of short stories. My book was the only short story collection in the mix. So it just, it has been, it's such an honor, even just to be uh, mentioned in the company of that shortlist was so incredible for me. And so that in itself was just my like, holy smokes moment. Um, but yeah, then then to get that news of being recognized, I think it's a strange thing. I think with book prizes, as, as, as all of us who are doing this kind of know, there's an artificialness perhaps to the idea of like a quote unquote best book. Do you know what I mean? But so I'm very aware of that. And what I can say is that what it really means to me is that this book resonated with the particular jurors on this jury and also I hope will continue to resonate uh, with readers and and perhaps reach more readers uh, with this kind of recognition. Yeah, excellent. And I think that's that's really the the great thing about prizes is that all of a sudden books sort of float the top of people's reading lists, right? And yeah. libraries order more copies and people buy more copies and it becomes more available to teaching universities and all these other ways, right? And I also appreciate what you said about the the artificialness of it, right? That you know that it depends on a, a ton of factors, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Which doesn't diminish the accomplishment of the book, but it's I think it's a healthy way to look at literary prizes for sure. So congratulations on <laughs> that. And have you been very busy fielding not only congratulations, but requests that you speak and write about this win? Yes. So it is certainly uh, a busy week in terms of like fielding media stuff. It's really, it's nice. It's nice to be able to to talk about the book and, you know, talk about the publisher. It's a big win. My publisher is House of a Nancy and they uh, also, I believe, won for poetry. So it's a big win for them and for indie publishers, I think, to get these kind of uh, awards is a big deal because we know they do, they do a lot on very small budgets. Indeed. And I think the poetry win was Hannah Green for Xanax Cowboy, Xanax right? Xanax Cowboy, that's right. Excellent. Okay. Didn't want that, that poetry book to go unmentioned here. <laughs> yeah. um, so, well, I just want to blow my own horn just a little saying that we didn't book you in the last week. Oh, no, no. <laughs> We've had you scheduled to be interviewed for a, a number of months. And this is just me breaking my arm, patting myself on the back <laughs> for my foresight. Yes. I read Chrysalis in the summer. And I read it shortly after meeting you when you were hosting Lit Live, which is a, a fabulous reading series in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And of course, meeting you was my reminder that I needed to read this book. I was really struck by it, especially with how you situate the stories in what I'm calling Nouvelle Horror. Ooh, Nouvelle Horror. Nouvelle um, Horror. It's got a ring to it. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sure I didn't make it up, but um, I've chosen it for the designation for this book. But yeah. that's, you know, that's a reader's response. And I am interested if you've been calling it something similar or something very different as well. Like, how did you think of how you wanted to shape these stories or even choose the ones that uh, went in the collection? For me, I think for people who are looking for straight up horror like that's really their jam this may not tick that box for them because it's really it's got an element of genre blending to it horror is certainly there but it's almost horror adjacent or i would say you know dark fiction perhaps which can bring in a lot of elements so yeah like i've seen it included in lists of horror or dark fiction books but uh yeah it's 
it occupies kind of a, uh, an in-between space in terms of genre. So it's it's a tough one to classify, I think, for folks sometimes. But that's what I like, quite frankly. I like a genre blend, right? I like Me not too. knowing. I like not knowing exactly what I'm getting, right? That mm-hmm. there are intimations that this would, uh, you know, toward traffic in the supernatural or in the large arcs of what is creepy or strange, right? Um, yeah, but, there's but lots n- of those elements that are particular. Like if you think about sort of gothic fiction, I think there's a lot of that, like haunted spaces, haunted houses, haunted farms. And and even just bringing that element of either the magical or the monstrous into like familiar spaces. So just neighborhoods or schools or malls. Um, Yeah, I think that's kind of where it's situated. Were you inspired by uh, other types of art? I know I was thinking of (laughs) a couple of these stories as potential stories for um, for Black Mirror, for the uh, (laughs) for that. Yeah, you are not the first person to tell me that. Like, oh, do you watch Black Mirror? These stories feel like that. And I'd like I would take that as a huge compliment. That's great. Yeah. If I'm thinking about other influences, I guess, uh, for this. So Chitra in particular, uh, which is the kind of uh, retelling of Cinderella set in the mall, (laughs) was uh, in response or, or inspired by Pasha Mala's book, Kill the Mall which is very weird. It's a very weird uh, novel about sort of haunted mall and and the things that go on there. But it just really got me thinking about uh, the potential for horror in a space like that, or the potential for that kind of very mundane, like commercial space that we're all so familiar with to have this element of weirdness or magic or fairy tale to it. So that's kind of where that came from. I was also watching, uh, it's, it's a Bollywood horror movie. It's called Bulbul, uh, produced by Anushka Sharma, who is uh, a Bollywood actress as well. Its main character sort of becomes this cross between demon and goddess. So she's out there doing some pretty monstrous things in response to wrongs done to her. It's kind of about embodying the monstrous, and rather than it the demon overpowering her, she she embraces that role. And so it's it's about the monstrous becoming empowering to the women characters. And I was like, ooh, I'm going to include that in my own stories. I see that kind of, you know, feminist moment throughout uh, these stories. And I think it's it's one of the real strengths and one of the things I, I know that uh, kept me reading and wondering how that was going to appear uh, mm-hmm. in, in the stories. Farzana Doctor was uh, an early mentor for you in crafting these stories. And I'd like to hear a little more about that. But right now, I want to just quote her about what she <laughs> says about the book. She calls the book cheekily feminist and says that it features characters who are unapologetically monstrous and ordinary, which I really like as a description. I love the way she sets the monstrous beside the ordinary because the ordinary has to be there for the kind of uncanny to shiver onto the page, right? (laughs) I like that. How did you think about those two terms when you were thinking about the process of writing the book? You talked about the one character who embraces the monstrous, Mm-hmm. but that's not always the trajectory here. Sometimes they have to sit alongside each other. Yeah, I think that idea of the monstrous within the mundane was very present for me as I was writing these stories and then bringing the collection together. Like, what are the things that kind of make this cohesive? Because the stories themselves are not linked, right? As some collections are. I do think you're onto something there. Like when you put 
magic or, you know, monstrosity in these sort of everyday settings that feel very familiar, like a mall, like a, like a shitty house in Parkdale, you know, those kind of things, it feels more unsettling, right? And it feels more real, which in turn makes it more frightening. I feel like the more familiar and comfortable a space feels when you suddenly add a darkness to it, that's, that's when it hits you in a harder way. Can you talk a little bit about mentorship and how uh, Farzana urged you towards this uh, collection? I mean, maybe urge is the wrong, the wrong verb, but uh, you tell me, what was it like working with her? Amazing. So I actually met her uh, through the BIPOC Writers Connect conference, which I believe is the, the uh, TWOC, the Writers Union that puts that on uh, in Toronto. And that was just pre-pandemic, I want to say like 2019, I, I got I got a chance to go to that and we were paired. So she was my mentor for the conference, which which means she got a chance to look at my work, which at that point was just, you know, a couple stories on, on paper that I printed out and handed to her. I think I had submitted maybe one or two things to magazines, hadn't really had a lot of stuff published, wasn't really sure what I was even doing, honestly. And so she was really the first one to look at the work and say, this is good. This is good. Maybe you have a book here. Have you thought about that? And I really hadn't. I just had stories on paper. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe there is a book here. What, what are the next steps? How do I make that happen? And so she was really able to take me through what, what would the process for that look like? She was the very first one. She introduced me to uh, the program officer who was there from the OAC. So we got a chance to talk about applying for some grants, some OAC recommender grants uh, to support this, uh, putting this manuscript together. And I was very fortunate to get a couple recommender grants, including one from House of Anansi, who is now the publisher of the book. And she's just been, you know, there throughout the process to say, you know, because there's so much about sending stuff out to publishers and not hearing back and, and getting feedback and working with that. And then, you know, even once you do have a publisher, that process of working with an editor, and there's so much that's mystifying about the process. And you kind of assume that maybe somebody will tell you or, or there's some some way that information becomes clear. And that's not entirely the case. Right. So we do you do kind of have to lean on people that have been through the process to help you out there. And so she's really been able to do that. I mean, this book is also I'm very fortunate that it's also shortlisted currently for the Dane Ogilvy through the Writers Trust. I've had two mentors, actually, Frazanna and Amber Dawn are both previous Dane Ogilvy winners. So so just to have that kind of mentorship, especially for stories that are about racialized characters and queer characters to have mentorship from other racialized and queer writers has been so important uh, in terms of uh, moving my work forward. That's great. And I and I love hearing that Farzana uh, made sure that you got some financial support as yeah. well. <laughs> right. Because, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, you know, how have sort of have a community support or psychological support. But sometimes it's just important to access the money. And I don't mean yes, that in a big, much so. big capitalist way, but people <laughs> have always have this question about, well, where do I get the time and the space to write this and still, you know, feed myself and my family? It's a real question, right? It's very real. And it's like very practical. Like I have two little kids uh, and I used a lot of that funding to pay for childcare during the summer and things like that. It just it makes such a difference to be able to not have kids running around to be able to sit down and write. Yeah, yeah, indeed. 
I'm also interested in is the form of the stories. So you mentioned before that Chrysalis was the only short story collection nominated for the Governor General's Award. And I know that sometimes at different points in time, there has been kind of a bias against short stories for prizes. And um, I have all kinds of opinions about that because <laughs> I really like collections of short stories. And I'm, I'm not always convinced that the, the novel is the sort of be all and end all form, right? So yeah. I was interested in the fact that it was a book of short stories and that the short stories themselves had a lot of differing lengths. Yes. Some of them were almost flash pieces. Yeah, you know, I love that in a collection because I love um, not knowing where this, uh, when this is going to end. Is this going to be a, you know, a multi-page piece that is going to take me through uh, time and space, or is this something that is going to be done in two pages, right? And I love that kind of variation. For the reader, there's a, a pleasure in not knowing the length of the story, especially in, in with stories like this. I guess I want to know, did you surprise yourself as you were writing this manuscript? In some ways, yeah. Like there were definitely initially uh, some longer pieces that we ended up swapping out for some of those shorter, almost flash fiction-y pieces just to create more of that, more exactly what you're talking about, right? That balance of different lengths, that kind of pleasure for the reader that some are a bit of a longer journey and some are like in and out, you know, you can finish this story in 10 minutes and you go, whoa, what did I, what did I just read? Kind of a, kind of a feeling. So yeah, that was, that was, I think, very intentional. And I think there were definitely some stories that started out, I really, you know, my idea was just probably it would have been a more standard kind of contemporary literary fiction story. And the, the uh, speculative element kind of caught me by surprise. They weren't all necessarily meant to be there. That idea kind of wormed its way in and planted itself and then once it was there it was very hard for me to then uproot it so so hmm. rather than force myself to do that it, I, I watered it and you know let it grow like weeds throughout the collection <laughs> awesome I think it's time to stop talking about it and to start hearing a little bit of it so can you read from uh, a story that had a, a kind of surprising moment for you yeah, I can, I'm going to read a little bit from a story called Milk. So this was this was one of the ones where initially my idea for it was just kind of going to be about this girl who's being kind of bullied by sort of a high school bully who she also there's a there's a weird element of her feeling perhaps a little attracted to this bully who she considers in her eyes very beautiful everything she is not tall and white and blonde hair just playing with that idea and then uh it, the whole thing kind of took a dark turn and now it's about suburban shapeshifters so um i will i will read a little bit uh from milk the moon came out early a translucent orb winking in the twilight Anju was eating her reheated fried rice on the front porch when she saw January come around the corner. It was strange to see her in jeans and a t-shirt, stranger still to see her alone. January was never alone, a pack hunter by nature, a predator by choice. You live in this shithole? She was standing on the curb looking at Anju's house, looking at Anju. Although Anju didn't answer, January nodded as if she had. Look, she said, glancing up and down the street, you better not tell anybody anything. Anju still said nothing, and January's mouth took on an ugly twist. What are you, some kind of pervert? You like spying on people while they fuck? Anju felt that familiar heat, red pen pressed to her skin, 
words like blood trickling down her thighs. Kindness, she reminded herself, soft words. That was the way the downtrodden in books became worthy of a new body, a new name. Her eyes fell on the black leather purse swinging at January's side. You got your purse back, she said. What are you talking about? Your, your purse was in the creek. That's why I went looking for you. I, I wasn't spying. I thought you needed help. January held up the bag and they both looked at it. This, she said, this purse was in the creek. Andrew saw then that it wasn't wet or mud-stained, that the rabbit's foot still hung from the strap, sleek and clean as ever. It was exactly as it always had been. I saw it, Anju whispered. I saw you. You saw nothing, January said, and Anju felt the humid air turn cold. The suburban world around her flickered under the rising moon, and she caught the smell of something animal nearby, close but unseen, a final test. I saw nothing, she said. This doesn't change anything between us, January told her, blue eyes flashing yellow, her face an icy, ageless thing in the streetlight's sallow glow. She turned and walked away, lean and fluid at home in the night. Over her shoulder, she called, stay out of the woods, and I'll leave it there. <laughs> it's me screaming. It's my disturbia scream. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you've ever walked around like a suburban neighborhood at night, it's you know people think of the suburbs as very safe, but it's very creepy. It's silent. It's it's wild. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Everyone's uh, everyone's in their homes watching TV, right? And uh, and the streets take on a kind of wildness. No, I, I know what you're saying. You know, I was I was interested in this exploration of female bullying, right, and how that fits into some of these these gothic tropes that you have looked at through a feminist lens and through an anti-racist lens, mm-hmm. um, and really freshened and interrogated those kinds of tropes. So I'm going to talk a little bit of feminist gothic theory here. Oh, let's uh, do it. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, so many of these stories just sort of reawakened my my reading into into that kind of theory uh, that I haven't done in a little while, but it uh, piqued my interest again. So there's this concept in feminist theory about Gothic literature, and you might have heard of it, that a great deal of Gothic literature specifically works on how people live together in discomfort and sometimes because they're uh, related. So they're living in a place that seems disturbed. And the people themselves are disturbed on it. So there's a a secret hidden deep in uh, the house. And that secret is both known and unknown, acknowledged and unacknowledged, right? And the secret's often revealed by a young female outsider who's determined to figure out why everyone in the house is acting so strangely or why they're so sad. Or you can fill in the the traumatized emotion, (laughs) right? Yeah. The theory goes further to say that the secret hidden at the heart of the house is female in origin, right? That it has to do with some kind of repression of the female body or female freedoms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wanted to offer you that as, as something that you could comment on as it relates or doesn't to what you've written in Chrysalis. And I know the the story that got me thinking about it the most was the two sisters in the story uh, in the bone fields and what they find in the drawer 
in an empty bedroom in their farmhouse. For sure. You know, I think that's true in so many of these stories that there is that idea of a force, some kind of, you know, something otherworldly, uh, often working against uh, the, the female main characters in my stories. Um, but I think also part of how I'm how I'm playing with that that trope is that in, in in a lot of these kind of gothic stories that that evilness or what that secret there's there's a clash between kind of the the main character and that force where it it either kind of destroys them you know the house burns down and that that's true in some of my stories but how I'm subverting it I think in some of them is that rather than that idea of destruction of it being destructive it gets flipped a little bit with the idea that it can also be empowering. So without giving giving away the ending, there there's a bit of something monstrous that happens in that story. So yes, that evil, that curse gets paid its due, but it also leaves the the main character at the end with a with a kind of power. You know what I mean? So so rather than being a destructive force, um, I'm using that as an empowering force for my characters. And it also seems that in that particular story that this was um, a generational power, a power that has been passed down. And the uh, the grandmother and the uh, the mother of the girls are very temporary characters. They appear mm-hmm. and then they're gone. And yes. we're, we're into the, the girls' lives as they grow up and, and become adolescents and young women. But clearly the force of the mother and the grandmother are, is omnipresent, despite the fact that they do not have a bodily presence in the story. Yeah, that's right. It speaks to the idea that this has existed, this power has existed, and it's not something necessarily that is forced on them, right? They all choose, the grandmother and the mother and, and the one, the sisters, uh, they choose in some way to partake in the power. And, and there is a price to be paid for it, and there is a power that comes from it. And I think the, the force of doubling was interesting there, too, because we've got two characters with rhyming first names, right? <laughs> yeah. And that, that seemed to suggest that there, there are two ways that they could go with this, right? And uh, as opposed to having the single um, female protagonist that has to do all the work for everyone, I like the fact that it was a kind of shared labor, you know, even when they don't make the same choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Twins, twins are a strange thing. They, they, twins show up. I think this idea of doubles or mirror images show up in a lot of uh, gothic fiction, and I think obviously of like the Shining twins and things like that. I don't know if that was uh, intentional, but but people have certainly commented that idea of doubles or mirror images. There's there's a lot of that kind of mirror imagery throughout the collection uh, that shows up. And another story I wanted to uh, look at in Bupati, we have a male protagonist living in the suburb and uh, I think female power is important here and the female power is in part located in the statues to the goddess Lakshmi that he has to buy over and over again because they keep getting destroyed by lightning. Yes. So (laughs) I thought this was interesting because it's that female power thing but instead of being in the heart of the house at least part of it is in the backyard in this space that's both public and private, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a kind of open secret about why the um, why the statue keeps getting destroyed by lightning and why he doggedly keeps replacing it. 
Yeah, and, and that's an interesting one because I think a lot of people have commented that like, oh, that's I think the only story in the book where you have a a male main character. And I, and my question in return is, is he the main character? You know, I won't give away kind of the ending of that one, but uh, by the time you get to the end, I think that's that's a question that's worth asking. Like, despite the voice of the story, where is the power really located? Um, and yeah, it was certainly a choice to sort of situate that you know, in a crumbling kind of house in Parkdale, which we, we've all seen those those sort of falling apart houses in Parkdale, uh, which probably, you know, still cost a million dollars. But uh, yeah, it's this idea that unexpected element of magic uh, or divinity in this case uh, can appear anywhere. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And, you know, and I think uh, your question's a, a very good one. Like, where where is the power? We see it. Yeah. <laughs> have a manifestation in the yard. But is that actually where it's located? Right. Hello, it's Tannis McDonald from Watershed Writers, wishing everyone a restful midwinter season. But I know that rest can be elusive. So I have book recommendations to help with that. I recommend to you Trisha Hersey's Rest is Resistance and Patricia Hample's The Art of a Wasted Day. I wish you rejuvenation and peace where you can find it this season. I'm going to have you read again in just a just a minute, but I want to just I don't want to have you go forward without talking a little bit about heartbreak in this where there's horror, there's heartbreak. And for me, that was so firmly embedded in the Vitalis song with the relationship between the two women. Can you say a little bit about uh, about your inspiration here? I mean, clearly, you know, it, it's based on a on, on a figure and, uh, and and kind of a rewrite of that tale or myth. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to say more about it. So the Vitala, uh, I was doing kind of research into uh, Hindu mythology and folklore for this sort of novel that I'm working on. And one of the figures that came up through that is the Vitala, who is sort of a, a revenant type creature, kind of a precursor to our modern uh, ideas of what a vampire is. So uh, Mr. Bram Stoker got his hands on some of those original Vitala texts. But what's interesting to me about that is that in the original kind of Vitala stories, the Vitala is a bit of a, a monstrous character, but also is a bit of a trickster type character. So your village might have a Vitala who is perhaps a bit of a protector of the village. So who who riddles, you know, people coming into the into the village. And I suppose if if they have uh, nefarious intentions, uh, yes, the Vitala might tear you to tear you to pieces. So. It's that kind of thing. And it was only really when those stories got translated and moved to the West by white dudes that it took on this, this is an evil creature. That wasn't the original sort of uh, tone to it. So I was really kind of interested in that. And, and my inspiration for the story was what, like, if we told a story from the perspective of this uh, Vitala, this sort of demonized creature, what room is there for a creature like that to feel love, to have a love story, to be loved in return? 
And that's, that's kind of where that came from. You know, I've been reading more and more about the uh, sort of the female trope of, of the vampire. So you, you mentioned this in Hindu culture. There's absolutely um, in Philippine uh, culture, there is uh, the Aswan, right? Oh. So she's a, she's a kind of um, a vampiric figure as well, and she can fly and change his shape, etc. And I just finished a book by a Romanian author, and she too says in the old folk tales, the vampires are women. And yeah. I'm just like, Wow, Brent Stoker has a lot to you know answer for, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, a kind of global appropriation of this female power into into a, a male narrative, right? Yeah, an, an evil, an evil male narrative. Yeah. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, and of course, a kind of displacement of power, because, you know, that's the whole whole thing that we're supposed to admire about Dracula is his power and, and yes. etc. cetera. But um, yeah, it, in, it looks more and more that globally that was a female power. More to come from Anusha in a minute. But first, thank you for listening to this episode of Watershed Writers. We appreciate that you appreciate our talks with writers living and working in the Grand River region. You can find us every Sunday morning at 10 on Midtown Radio KW, or you can hop on over to SoundCloud to listen whenever you want. We have amassed quite a library of interviews over three and a half seasons, and they are all there for your listening pleasure including interviews with Clarence Kachaji, Madura Nand, Luke Hathaway, Carol Duncan, E.K. Johnson, Pamela Mordecai, Sarah Tolmy, and many other writers. So you can listen live or listen later. For more information about our lineup of authors, please visit our website at www.watershedwriters.ca. I'm going to ask you now if you uh, want to uh, read from another story. We've talked about a whole bunch of them, but I'm interested in, yeah, in what choice you would make if you just get to to read because you want to read. <laughs> I think because maybe we were just talking about uh, the Vitala song, I'll, I'll just read a little bit from the beginning of that one. The river is vast and full of ashes. The rickshawvala warns the foreigner not to drink the water. The woman adjusts her sunglasses, even though the sun has not yet risen and the sky is still draped in purple, layered with the delicate lace of a pre-dawn fog. She peppers the driver with questions, first in English with poor results, then in halting Hindi, about the river, the temples that line it, and the pyres that billow smoke across its surface. He is short on answers and only points her in the direction of the ghats. She pays him the agreed-upon sum and climbs down from the bicycle-drawn cart. He will take her no further than this. I watch, veiled, cursing this half-blind corpse whose body I have borrowed. I see then what I have come here for. Under one arm, the foreigner cradles a silver urn. My kind consumes flesh, not ash. But for the woman in the urn, I will make an exception. The foreigner begins to make her way down the steps, and I follow. No one looks twice at a beggar woman with an acid-scarred face. At least here, by the water's edge, the smell of rot that seeps through the cotton sari in which this body was killed is masked by all the other smells mingling together around me, dead fish and fire, sewage and smoke. 
The woman has come dressed in a black salvar kameez. Black is the color of mourning in the country she calls home. In this country, we wear white to part with our dead, and soon the gaps will be crowded with men in white kurtas, women weeping, children scolded into solemnity, all there to feed the river the remains of those they loved. But what of those of us who die unloved? What of those whose families cast them out, who will pay no priest to chant over their pyres and see their souls safely off? They are left to the charnel grounds. Not many cities allow such places anymore, abandoned groves of withered fruit trees where dead bodies are left to decompose unburied, unburnt. It is unsanitary, they say now, a risk to public health. But in this city where I was once young and knew what it was to love defiantly, two charnel grounds still exist. One to the east, marked by a Bodhi tree, and one to the west, marked by a Naga tree. Today, you would have to be willing to make some dubious inquiries to find these unholy sites. Or, like me, you would have to live there. But I wouldn't wish such an eternity on anyone, no matter what their crime. Mine was merely to love the woman in the urn. And I'll leave it there. Thank you for that. And I'm, I'm glad that reading contained the phrase when I was young and knew what it was like to love defiantly, because that kind of loving defiantly is, is woven throughout this collection, uh, whether it is romantic love, and it often is, and, uh, and sometimes uh, fidelity to, to people in, in one's family. So these stories, I've been talking about what links them. And I think that's that's a good way to think about it. But I think there's also value in thinking through their difference as well. Um, and you take on a number of um, subgenres here. So there's a murder mystery, sort of a quasi werewolf story, <laughs> yeah, uh, a love triangle and or rectangle, <laughs> depending <laughs> on how you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, quite a few stories about grieving uh, the loss of parents or lovers. And in one of uh, the major stories, and this is one of my personal favorites, so I wanted to showcase it a little bit. You've talked about uh, Chitra as a story that is a rewrite of, of Cinderella, but I know that one of the things I, I most admired about it was how it critiques beauty standards, fashion, and this idea of privilege, who gets to be beautified. Right. So there's this whole thing about how she's going to um, attend the buy one, get one free sale <laughs> uh, to get the, these very coveted shoes that all the women in the mall, be all the women who work in the mall, appear to have their eye on. Right. And uh, people say to her that she doesn't deserve the shoes or they they wouldn't look good on her. They, you need somebody more glamorous to wear the shoes. And I'm going to read just from a sentence or two from this, because I loved this moment. Chitra saw Gori's curls bobbing above the fray and headed straight for her. Just as Gori got to the keypad to enter her stolen code, Chitra came up behind her and shouted, Hey! Gauri turned and scowled. Go home, Chitra, she said. You don't belong here. Bitch, I work here, Chitra replied and then drew back her fist like it was full of stars and let it explode square against Gauri's nose. I, you know, I'm not uh, uh, unconvinced that I didn't say that just so I could say the words, bitch, I work here. Um, <laughs> but I also really loved it as a moment where the idea of working, 
of finding one's place in that mall and saying, I deserve to be here because of the labor I have put in, right? I, I really liked that as a moment. There's Chitra asserting her right to be at the sale and perhaps get the coveted shoes because she's put in the time, not because she is the most beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that as a, as a kind of twist on the, on the Cinderella story, right? Where Cinderella's work is, is devalued, but we don't get her asserting her right because of the work. And here, I, I really like that the Chitra asserts her right because she knows stuff, she does stuff, she accomplishes stuff. In fairy tale spaces, you know, often the heroines of these stories get to marry the prince or, you know, get get their happy ending because they are beautiful, right? They are plucked out of whatever their terrible circumstances are, uh, you know, by their by their prince charming or what have you, because they are so beautiful uh, and because they are, you know, so good and whatnot. Whereas here, I think it is it is about Chitra saying. I deserve this, and and maybe I'm not the most beautiful. And and I think even within within the mall, I worked at the mall for many years. I worked at Sears, if anybody remembers Sears. But there is this kind of strange hierarchy to like where you fall uh, among mall workers, right? And and if you work at the the Abercrombies and the the Le Chateaus of of the mall, I, I was uh, deeply in love with Le Chateau for a very long time. And and Chitra, it, that story is kind of my homage to to Le Chateau. There are those kind of retail spaces full of usually attractive salespeople that are kind of at the top of that hierarchy. And then you have your your food court workers and things like that who 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 are at the bottom of that hierarchy so it's there that exists that that uh value scale of the kind of work you do exists so that's playing with that idea and yeah just just allowing the heroine of that story who occupies a cinderella type role to triumph and to triumph you you read this part where she really kind of asserts herself and she's she does some pretty monstrous things. She's punching folks. She's throwing folks in dumpsters where they're eaten alive by rats. Like there's there's some pretty intense moments there, and and she's allowed to have that. So it's it's letting those fairy tale characters who would would otherwise not get those moments really get to embrace them. I mean, I think it's more than just a revenge fantasy, but I like it as a revenge fantasy. <laughs> the throwing the people in dumpsters. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in, clearly, you know, with the link to Cinderella, uh, the, the shoes are important, but I think shoes are this huge symbol of, of a kind of uh, consumable femininity. And I wanted to think about the role of those um, vastly coveted pair of shoes in the Chitra story. So the shoes are the arbiter of female beauty and sensuality. You have to be a certain type of woman to wear these shoes. And of course, that's what they keep telling the protagonist. You're not that kind of woman. Can you talk a little bit about, about you and shoes and why you wanted to sort of, you know, extend that metaphor of the shoes to be more than a glass slipper, but mm-hmm. um, like a whole debate about femininity in that story? I love shoes and I love beautiful shoes, um, but I'm certainly, I'm very aware that it speaks to class and like where where you belong in the world, I guess, and and how prohibitively expensive a lot of beautiful shoes are. 
Um, and I, I know just even for myself, right? If I, I can recognize if someone's wearing, you know, red bottom shoes, I, I have a immediate kind of understanding or, you know, I don't know, a way that I'm thinking about the person wearing those shoes. I know something about at least, you know, how, how did someone like that get that pair of shoes? So all those ideas are connected, I think. It's kind of a, a, a small symbol of power, but, but to allow a character like Chitra in the story, who otherwise has so little power, to get her, her BOGO shoes, her buy one, get one free shoes um, at the end as the mall is falling to pieces around her was an important moment, I think. Indeed, indeed. I think it's also like the shoes represent sort of youth and hope at the same time as well. Because when you think about some of those beautiful shoes, there's no way anyone over the age of 50 can wear those shoes and still walk, right? <laughs> right? right but, we, but we force ourselves to, right? I mean, I think you can be 25 and, and force your feet into shoes that are so incredibly uncomfortable. And we do it. We do it anyway, because they look hot and we, and we, they, we, we feel powerful and we feel sexy and beautiful when we wear them we want other people to look at us and know that like either you were able to afford those shoes or you look really good in those shoes like all it's all kind of tied together so I I, I recognize that that's something that's happening yeah, indeed. And before anyone uh, writes in and calls me ageist, I'm just saying that by the age of 50, I had sciatica <laughs> so bad that there is no way I could wear them. Maybe some of uh, 50 plus people can, but not me. That kind of like pain for beauty, it's just, it's so ingrained in us, right? That like, we all know that your feet are going to hurt and be blistered all to hell the next day. But it doesn't necessarily stop you from wearing the beautiful shoes. We all, we've all done that. It's true. And I know I was traveling with a friend of mine uh, once and because we'd been doing a lot of walking, we needed, you know, we needed moleskin and, and blister packs and a whole bunch of things. And we were standing in, I don't know where we were, France, somewhere, we were standing in the um, foot care aisle of the, the pharmacy. And I remember thinking, this is such a feminized space. Because it's not like men don't get blisters, but they just slap a, you know, a Band-Aid on and that's it. And all of these products, these tiny little Band-Aids and these, yes. you know, and these perfect they little cut things. cut it into strips so nobody sees it. So nobody knows that you're bleeding, that your heels are bleeding, but they probably will. So you can stick this on and feel marginally better while you're wearing these beautiful torture devices on your feet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, a female space, the foot yeah. care aisle of Shopper's Drug Mart. <laughs> I want to come back to this idea of horror fiction for a bit. And I want to quote Stephen King, because, mm. you know, let's come back to the to, to the basics for a second. And I've remembered what he has said long ago in an interview. I probably couldn't find it anymore. That's how old this is, but I've remembered it forever. He once answered someone who asked him this question, how do you make up all that scary stuff? Right? Yeah. Okay. He's a horror writer, so I guess a legitimate question. But he answered it this way. Who says I make it up? <laughs> now, this might be a flippant answer. Yeah. But I, I want to take it seriously for a bit. Just to say that to write horror or on the edge of horror or the kind of hybrid horror that we've been talking about, is to traffic with what frightens us. 
And most of us don't need to make up that scary stuff. You know, psychologically, we know what scares us. We know what frightens us. Yeah. It's in our brains. It's in our bodies. It's in our nightmares. It's all over our waking anxieties in life. So horror fiction is a fiction that draws heavily on that reality of living in a body, Mm -hmm. the sort of terror of living in something that is vulnerable and vulnerable physically, of course, but something you get at as well is a kind of social and cultural vulnerabilities as well. Can you speak to to those kind of social and and cultural vulnerabilities as you see them played out in, in Chrysalis? So like I'm someone who who lives in a in a racialized body. I'm someone who lives in a queer body. So often those things get othered, right? And the other is if we look at kind of mainstream horror, it is the other that is monstrous. It is the other that is ugly, that is unnatural, right? You want to make those things part of what is normal and what is natural and what is beautiful. So if you exist as the other, you you exist as the monster. And that is often, that is more true even within our own communities sometimes where you would hope you would find acceptance. Sometimes that is where you become the most uh, ostracized. So I'm playing with some of those ideas and what does it mean to exist in a body that is made monstrous? And how do you respond to that? I mean, that can that can turn you a lot of different ways. And, and I think sometimes it's this idea of transformation, right? So, so my characters are sometimes, uh, they're all in moments of transformation, hence the title Chrysalis, but they are sometimes transforming towards embracing uh, the monstrous and saying, there's room for beauty here, even if you don't see it. There's room for love here. I'm, you, you, can't, you can't demonize me. You can't make me turn against myself. I'm going to embrace what I am. Uh, you know, if, and even that, you know, if I've grown claws, I'm okay with that. And uh, even if that means I might turn those claws on you. You know, I really thought about that in terms of the, the Vitalis song and thinking about how the, the lovers come together are reunited mm. at the end as a moment of queer joy. And it's like yeah. transcending time and space and bodies and they, you know, they finally, you know, uh, join. And I think, yeah, that, that's our moment of queer joy right there. Right. Um, which I, I really liked about that story. That was, that was one of my faves. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, a lot of people have messaged me about that story. I think it's, uh, it's hit a nerve in a lot of ways, which is really lovely. I think when you write anything, you write it with, with the hope that it connects with someone. And, and I feel like it's, it's done that. Cool. Now, I want to ask, and this is sometimes a, you know, a thorny question for someone who's just had a book out and had had a major award, but what are you working on now? <laughs> uh, well, so a couple of things. I uh, have sort of finished, I suppose, a draft anyway, of a novel that is probably more closer to what you would consider like a commercial fantasy novel. My best kind of pitch for it is that it's sort of a cross between a, a D&D game and like a queer Bollywood epic. So there's there's that in the works that I'm that I'm kind of working on revisions for. And then I'm also just in the very early stages. Uh, we just talked a little bit about the Vitala song. So I'm in the early stages of expanding that into a novel. Oh, wow. Can you read something uh, new for us? Something? Can you premiere something for us? <laughs> I can try. Yes, I will read a little bit uh, from, from this sort of 
fantasy novel draft. Um, yeah, it's based in a world set loosely on uh, medieval India. Bala quickly waved her hand in a circle over Tara's head three times, making the symbol of the goddess Usara and warding off the evils Tara so blithely suggested. It's in her hands, she said, and Abaya is in yours. Tara reluctantly sat up and accepted the tea that was offered. Bala stroked her hair as she drank, her fingers combing through to the ends that now curled just below the girl's ears. A week before, Tara's hair had fallen past her waist in thick, shining curls that Bala had spent countless hours washing, combing, and trying to tame. Then, as tradition demanded, on the night before her crowning, the princess had cut off her hair and made an offering of it in the temple of Usara, burning it in the sacred fire so it could not be used to cast spells against her, a sacrifice of beauty for power. When she had appeared before her people, it had been without veils or flowers or other adornments. There was only the Princess Taratajani, named for a falling star, holding her shorn head high and wearing the simple gold crown that had made her into a queen. But the crown does not make the queen. Bala had told her so often enough. No one had yet told her what would, but something in Tara already knew. It was days like today that would bring her closer to who she must become. It was her wedding day, the next step in her journey as a bias queen, and the only step there was to take. Bala took the empty cup from Tara's hands and said, when you are dressed, your mother wishes to see you. Tara looked at her with raised eyebrows, locked away in one of the red palace's many spiraling towers, guarded from prying eyes and wagging tongues, with only a view of the sea and her crumbling mind for company. Queen Suvarnathara had not spoken a coherent word in more than a month. Bala shrugged as if to say, if you want to know, ask her yourself, before she turned and left Tara alone with her goddess and her thoughts. And I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. And what's your uh, working title for that? Uh, working title is Nandapur, A City Awakens. So the sort of magical, sort of fictional city of the novel is called Nandapur. And are you visualizing this as a, a series? I mean, because it sounds like it has the size of a series, the potential <laughs> size for a series. The, the verbiage on that is a standalone with series potential. <laughs> Always mm -hmm. know your marketing yes, phrases. <laughs> that's it. That's right. <laughs> and what's the, uh, it sounds to me, um, as you were taking those, uh, the two things that you pitched, the D&D, with combined with Bollywood and being in uh, medieval India, what's the research component like for you? Yeah, so I mean that's where that's where the Vitala song came from. Doing uh, doing that research into uh, Hindu mythology and uh, delving into some of that histor the historical elements that that are informing the novel, even though it is in a fantasy setting, it has a lot of that kind of medieval India history. In historical fiction, I love those sort of sensory details. You know, what what did the palaces look like? What did the clothes look like? What kind of food were they eating? How were they traveling? What were their pastimes? What animals were around? All those all those little bits and pieces that make the world feel feel real. 
yeah, feel real and also present particular challenges too. what animals were around as they're traveling. Are those animals dangerous? Can those animals be hunted? Can they eat those animals? Will they eat those animals, et cetera, right? Yeah. So uh, everything sort of you know flows out of the, the details of, of the world. And of course, you know, you're always going to have medieval specialists uh, reading and going, aha, I see <laughs> this part is true and this part less so, right? Yes. This part is more fantasy. This is more based in history. It'll be interesting to see when it, I don't know, if it comes out, when it comes out. I hope people uh, find it a fun ride, if nothing else. Well, it sounds like a very ambitious project, to be sure. And I wish you the best of luck with it. And I hope to be reading it in a year or so. Anusha, I really want to thank you for joining us today and for making time for us in what is surely a very busy couple of weeks. Uh, congratulations again on uh, Chrysalis winning the Governor General's Award for Fiction this year. And um, what are you going to do with the rest of the weekend? Relax a little bit, I think. Maybe uh, see my family, remind them that I exist. That's probably my, my goals. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's a good goal. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much for coming on A Watershed Riders. I want to remind our listeners that Anuja Varghese's Governor General's award-winning book of short fiction, Chrysalis, is available, well, all over. But at Watershed Writers, we encourage you to shop your local independent bookstore and support your local literary writers. That is at Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, Rookery Books in Cambridge, or Anuja's favorite store in Hamilton, Epic Books. So please get your hands on that. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Watershed Riders comes to you every Sunday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with our episodes posted to SoundCloud or to our website at watershedridersalloneword.ca. Coming up on the podcast, we talk with poet Chris Banks about mental health and the tensions of late-stage capitalism in his book, Alternator. I had the pleasure of being Chris's guest at his launch in November, and it was a treat to hear him talk about this book. Also coming up, I will be talking with first-time novelist James Chirani about his new novel, Between the Head and the Hands. This is a novel about growing up Muslim and growing up queer, and one young man's search for a way to be in the world. We are always looking out for writers in the region, and if you know someone you'd like to hear us interview, feel free to drop us a line and let us know. It is December, and the midwinter hype around the holidays can be stressful and sometimes it can be saddening. Be kind to whomever you can, rest whenever you can, and know too that Canada's new mental health crisis helpline was launched at the end of November. Anyone can call and there will be help at the other end of the line. The number for the nationwide mental health crisis helpline in Canada is 988. Three digits, that's all. It's okay to ask for help. You deserve it. That number again, 988.
Francis Roberts Riley is the founder and producer of Watershed Riders. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am Tannis McDonald, your host and voracious reader. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Oh,